Good afternoon. Our next case is NRAF and RGF, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. Uh, my name is James Palmer from Henderson County Bar. It's my first time here, and I appreciate your time and hearing from me today. I represent the petitioners, uh, Stacy and Kevin Cutshaw, who are the custodians of the two minor children. Uh, children were born in 2012 and 2013. Uh, I also represented the Cutshaws at the trial court level. Uh, and they're, of course, are the appellants for today's purposes as a result of the dissent in the Court of Appeals. Uh, the subject termination of parental rights order that today is about was entered on July 15 of 2021 in Henderson County. Um, uh, the action was against both parents. The father did not appeal, so today just concerns the mother and, and, and always has. Um, I'll do my best to reserve five minutes for rebuttal as well. Um, petitioners are husband and wife. Uh, the aunt and uncle of the minor children also licensed foster parents. They've had custody of the two children um, who, are, who are biological brothers um, as a result of a Henderson County DSS case that began in early 2015 ended about two years later in April of 17. Um, at that point, the DSS case closed. It got converted into a regular custody order um, with the parents each having a visitation schedule, and that's outlined in the, in the record. Um, fast forward four years to April 6th of 2021, the Cutshaws filed a termination of parental rights petition against the biological parents. Um, upon filing, the mother was appointed an attorney uh, referred to as Ms. Walker. Um, the summons was in good order. It was on the state form. Um, had Ms. Walker's address, phone number laid out clearly for the, for the mother to have access to. Um, it, it was the provisional appointment, and um, also want to point out that this was a you know a, a private TPR, of course, and not one that had a, a continuous flow from being a DSS case that turned into a termination of parental rights. Um, summons is full of language directing the mother to file an answer within 30 days. Uh, to contact her attorney immediately and to, you know, with attention-grabbing language, bold, bold fonts, very clear, telling the mother what she needs to do. Um, mother was served by Sheriff uh, Henderson, uh, of Henderson County on April 16th of 2021. And shortly thereafter, the mother, through her, through her attorney, filed an extension of time um, signed by district court judge, allowing the mother until June 9th of 2021 to file an answer. Um, the, and also the motion for extension time didn't give any reasons. It was just, you know, very short, non-specific ex extension of time. Um, two weeks after June 9th, uh, filed a notice of hearing and sent it to the mother's attorney. 
uh, for a hearing date of about 21 days later, uh, hearing date being that July 15, 2021 date. Um, more, certainly more than any required notice provision, which uh, I guess would be 10 days. Um, still no answer from the mother, and then we arrive at the July 15th court date. Um, had a standard calendar call with uh, Judge Britton, the Chief District Court Judge. Mother's attorney was present, Miss Walker was present, and the pretrial hearing began. Um, no motions to continue, either oral or written. Uh, no motions to dismiss, no motions to hold open, no motion for a guardian ad litem, and still no answer followed by the mom who had been served at this point about 90 days before. Um, the court then asked the mother about contact with the client, and at which point the Ms. Walker replied that the mother had, con had contacted the attorney once she was served shortly after in April. The mother never came into the, the attorney's office for her scheduled appointment, Mother later contacted the attorney's office to say she was in a rehab or treatment facility. Attorney later contacted the facility and the mother had graduated successfully, but has not contacted the attorney office since then and that it had probably been since April since the attorney had heard from the client. So that what that shows to me is that the mother knew who, knew who her attorney was, had made contact. The attorney did the proactive, you know, good attorney things of getting an extension of time. Um, and, and again, this was the same attorney that she'd had throughout. I've occasionally seen some that where they, you know, flip-flop attorneys and, you know, have to substitute in. But this was the same, same attorney throughout the case. Um, after the conversation with the judge, uh, the court on its own motion and without objection from the mother's attorney, released mother's attorney as required by 7B1101.1, noting that that's what the legislature directs the court to do. Uh, termination of parental rights hearing was then held. Miss um, Cutshaw testified. Uh, mainly regarding the allegations in the petition, or you know, allegations that you know, just follow, tracking what was in the petition mainly, uh, noting the lack of contact over the four-year period before the TPR was filed, and then the failed the, the failed DSS case before that, which lasted about two years, um, and it was a short hearing, of course, but uh, there's only so many ways to describe someone that's not a parent that's not done anything. Because she really hadn't, the mom hadn't done anything in many years. Um, allegation, the petition hadn't even had visitation since 2019. Um, judgment was entered that day. Um, about just short of 30 days later, the mother filed her notice of appeal. Um, there was never a Rule 60 motion filed by the mother. Um, much of what 
brings us here today is, the, I guess, the mother's allegation or suggestion that she didn't have notice of the hearing. Um, but, it, you know, for whatever reason, instead of filing a Rule 60 motion, she files notice of appeal. Um, I'm sure somewhat what you have in front of you deals with the mother's incorrect appeal at that point to the court. Uh, let's say I, I, she appealed to the North Carolina Supreme Court, should have been Court of Appeals. On that part of what brings us here today, I'll just rest on what's in my brief. Let me ask you one yes. question about that. So both the majority and the dissent in the Court of Appeals uh, cited case law that they say stands for the proposition that, in fact, it's the exact same quote, in order to confer jurisdiction on the state's appellate courts, appellants of lower court orders must comply with the requirements of Rule 3 of the North Carolina Rules of Appellate Procedure. Do you think that's an accurate statement of the law, that jurisdiction requires compliance with all of Rule 3 of the Rules of Appellate Procedure? Uh, as best I know, that sounds accurate. Because, so Rule 3E says service of a notice of appeal. And then it says service of copies of the notice of appeal may be made in accordance with Rule 26. But this court has held that service is not a jurisdictional requirement, right? I believe that's right. That's not one of my strong suits. But. Oh, and, okay, so let, I'll make an assertion <laughs> so I don't put you on the spot. But yeah. if you go back to D, which is actually the, the provision relevant here, that's the provision of Rule 3 that includes um, you know, noting the appeal is taken to the proper court also has a number of other requirements of the content of the notice of appeal. And the Court of Appeals, at least, in a number of cases, has held that some of those other provisions in Rule 3D uh, are not jurisdictional, that if there's no prejudice and the other side understood uh, what was sought to be appealed, then uh, there may be jurisdiction. It's just a question of whether there's some other sanction. So the reason I say that is if that statement's not an accurate one, do we need to address that as the Supreme Court? Because this could confused parties, it's certainly not true that e complying with everything that's in Rule 3 under our current case law is necessary to confer jurisdiction on, uh, on the Court of Appeals in a case like this. I hate to say I don't know, but I really don't know. <laughs> um, certainly her notice of appeal was, was incorrect. Um, you know, that that much I do know, and, and for, for everything else, I'm sorry for not knowing. <laughs> Thank you, Counsel. Right. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. So uh, a follow-up to that is that I, if I understand the reasoning of the dissent correctly, the dissent was then saying, so there's no appellate jurisdiction by right. And then the dissent cited a case called State v. Ricks that this court decided, in which the holding was, if in order to take a case, the, uh, the Court of Appeals must do two things. First. Uh, allow a petition for writ of certiorari, issue the writ of certiorari, and then second, then invoke Rule 2 in order to find that an unpreserved argument was preserved and could be addressed. But that was too many steps. It was per se abuse of discretion. And if I understand the dissent's reasoning here, it's that because there was no cert petition filed, that this court would need to, or the Court of Appeals would need to invoke Rule 2 in order to sort of sui spani issue cert, and that that would violate State v. Ricks. What's your view on that? I certainly agree with the dissent, but you know, in terms of further analysis, uh, analyzing it, you know, that's not one of my strong suits. <laughs> Thank you, Counsel. Yep. Do you agree with the dissent 
that the Court of Appeals did not have the wherewithal to treat the uh, flawed attempt to appeal as a petition for certiorari and therefore to allow the Court of Appeals to entertain the appeal? Well, I think the Court of Appeals can, you know, take and decide whatever courses or cases they would like. Um, certainly they rendered a, you know, decision and in spite of it being, you know, to the in incorrect court, it got there somehow. Um, well, these matters are governed by rules and compliance with rules as Justice Deeks has stated uh, in his questioning, but did the Court of Appeals have the opportunity here legitimately, in your view, to entertain this appeal, flawed though it may have been initiated, and if so, how and why? Well, I'm not sure, and I really don't know. Um, you know, they issued an opinion, um, they took it, they treated it, whether it was right or wrong, you know, maybe it was in their discretion. You know, I, I agree with the dissent. I didn't spend a lot of time on that part. Um, and I'm, you know, just one of my uh, Let me unfamiliarity turn another, issues. So. Let me turn you in another direction okay. then. Uh, what do you make, or what should we make, of the fact that the mother sent a card to the children a week before the TPR hearing from the standpoint of the mother's continued opportunity to try to have some involvement with the children prior to the TPR hearing. Well, that's a good point. And I thought about it on my drive here. <laughs> One, she knew how to contact the custodians. Um, you know, she was able to get a letter out from wherever she was. When I saw the letter, when I heard about the letter, and, and you know, it was testified to at court, it sounded to me like a, you know, goodbye, thank you letter that she almost acknowledged something was about to happen, you know, that being the TPR hearing. And interestingly, she contact, you know, she wrote that, you know, the, the nice letter to the, to the custodians, but did not contact her court-appointed attorney at that same early, I think that was getting into early July of 2021. Um, so I think it shows a couple things that she, you know, was able to make contact from wherever she was. Um, probably a hint that she, you know, like I say, it kind of seemed like a, you know, thank you, goodbye um, letter. It, it may have been around a birthday as well, but, I, but I'm not, that may have been coincidental or not. I, mean, I just don't, don't know. Um, and also noteworthy that she did not contact her attorney during that period. But she instead wrote the petitioner. And that's, so that's, I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Counsel, uh, was there a legal requirement for the mother to be served with notice of the TPR hearing? Well, Yes, and I always, you know, I'll always send out notice um, in, in spite of her not filing an answer. Um, the, the reason it was sent to the attorney, the attorney had made an appearance by, you know, the motion for extension of time. 
Um, and you know, to me, and I think case law supports it, there's a presumption that that attorney will notify the client. I think rule five of the civil procedure rule supports serving the attorney as opposed to you know, me kind of going around their back and serving their client directly. Um, so I think notice was properly sent to the mother's attorney on behalf of the mother. Um, again, with ample notice about, 20, about three weeks, 21 days prior to the hearing. I hope that answers your question. Does the, the record tell us anything about the attorney's efforts to ensure that the mother knew about the hearing? Well, it's, it's silent somewhat silent um, and you know that's that's an unknown um, you know certainly the presumption is there that the attorney notified the client that's kind of what attorneys do when, when they represent somebody they send the notice of hearing to their clients they contact them. well well actually do our cases say that there's a presumption or do our cases say that the trial court must inquire into the efforts made by counsel to contact the parent in order to ensure that the parent's rights are adequately protected. I'm reading from Inway KMW, which was a recent decision of this court and um, cited by um, the respondent parent, but not, uh, your brief doesn't address it. And so I'm just curious, are you essentially asking us to revisit that and say that's no longer true? Well. I think there's a lot that goes into it. You know, um, certainly I think the court should inquire, but there's also there's still also the presumption that attorney's going to notify the client. Um, you know, the court did not specifically ask, well, did you tell your client to be here today? Um, court could have. Attorney could have, you know, volunteered it quite easily. You know, attorney could have done such things as, you know, ask for a you know, continuance motion because, you know, if she felt service was, you know, iffy or something like, you know, something along those lines. But, you know, maybe the, maybe the client and attorney talked. We just don't know. Maybe the attorney didn't want to, you know, just didn't want to go to court or just wanted it to continue with in, in her absence or you know, wanted a termination so that child support would be, you know, terminated. Um, may not want to divulge the court, you know, her affairs of the last, you know, several years. Um, so certainly the court could have asked more questions, but I think the court also had enough kind of evidence, you know, surrounding circumstances that, um, you know, that the mother hadn't really ever done much of anything and hadn't hadn't responded to the answer and um, you know had spent you know had 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 a failed DSS case you know many years ago um, and at least when you read the verified petition it has you know some pretty you know damaging allegations that I think the court can consider of a parent that's been through all that, not being able to get custody back, and then the evidence the court hears at the calendar call as well, she's in rehab or treatment facility or ha had been left, hasn't contacted me. Um, you know, the one missing point is, well, I told her about the hearing today, but I think that can be presumed. So. Even with those lapses, though, by the mother that you're discussing, 
did the trial court have an affirmative action to uh, an affirmative duty rather to comply with the statutes and if the answer is yes then how then did the trial court operate within those responsibilities here the first part trial court must follow the statute so I mean um, and can you explain I'm sorry the kind of the second yes. part of that yeah second part would be with your acknowledgement that the statutes do apply and that therefore the trial court did have to comply with the statutes in terms of making certain inquiries uh, concerning uh, what's at issue here, which is whether or not the council had made efforts to contact the mother and what those efforts were. And secondly, whether or not the mother had actual notice, how did the trial court go about ascertaining that? On, on both of those matters. I agree the court, you know, and, and it's a it, short page in the transcript about what happened or you know, maybe spilled over on the second page, but it's very brief. Uh, you know, obviously in hindsight, I wish the judge would have asked some more questions or the attorney would have, um, attorney for the mother would have, you know, volunteered more. Um, you know, my summary of that is I think looking at you know the picture of the whole as a whole over the life of the kids the mother's not done much of anything um, and even if the mother's attorney didn't volunteer it did the trial court still have the responsibility and the duty under the statute to make sure the trial court knew those answers before proceeding to relieve counsel well it, it would have been better <laughs> you know I admittedly I would you know I, I wish it was more but I, I, I just think looking as as a whole um, you know, the court's inquiry was reasonable. Attorney had all the time, had the floor to state what she wanted to say, um, you know, about contacts or lack of contacts. Um, in some cases, the, the answer to those questions may be incriminating to the mother. Um, you know, for instance, if, you know, of course the mother would look bad if the attorney said, well, I called her and she just didn't want to be here. Or, you know, she's too embarrassed to come, but I can, you know, my argument would be the attorney had the floor to say whatever she wanted to say. Um, you know, the judge felt confident to, you know, proceed. Um, and again, just looking as, as, as a whole, you know, it already been about a 90 to 100 days since the date of filing no activity on behalf of the mother. Um. So, counsel, suppose that this was just an ordinary uh, child custody matter, and one of the parties, there was a hearing that was scheduled. The notice of hearing is sent to counsel for a party, and then that party doesn't appear at the hearing, and then appeals and argues well, I didn't know there was a hearing. My lawyer didn't tell me there was one. What happens in that? What's a court going to say in that scenario? Well, certainly there's, you know, distinction of the termination where, you know, personal interest and constitutional interests are at stake versus, you know, just mere custody, which can always just be modified later. Well, what I'm getting at is whose fault was it that at the hearing nobody ensured that that 
party knew to show up because there was a hearing. Is it the court's fault or is, or is it the lawyer for that party well, who should have said to the client, make sure you show up? Our court doesn't send out notices, you know, to, you know, so, that, so therefore it would fall on the attorney. I do think it's interesting and noteworthy that there's no ineffective assistance of counsel claim against the mother. And my presumption, therefore, is that, you know, she acted responsibly, diligently, um, well, in her own judgment. Well, that was going to be my, my, my point is if, if the obligation is on the attorney, and if your attorney didn't tell you about a hearing so you didn't know to show up for it, your, your remedy is a malpractice claim. You know, your attorney didn't provide the professional uh, responsibility that was required so you can bring this claim. So if you assume that's the remedy, then here, uh, why too wouldn't the burden be on the mother? And you mentioned Rule 60. I mean, why isn't the solution a Rule 60 motion that says, I want to present evidence that I didn't know there was a hearing, and that's why I wasn't there? I certainly agree that would have been the best approach to, you know, figure out what in the world happened. Because it, there's nothing in the record that the mother, you know, didn't have notice of the hearing. You know, maybe she had notice and just didn't want to come. And the attorney, you know, just kept her cards held tight, or maybe the client even told her, um, maybe the client's instructions were even, you know, just go through, but don't, you know, just let it go through. And your position is uh, what's driving the determination of whose obligation that is. It's not the constitutional criteria you might find from the Sixth Amendment. It's not some of the other rules of practice that cited in past cases from this court. There's an operative statute, and that's the one that provides this right, statutory right to counsel in these cases. And you're looking to that and saying the obligation would be on the parent in this circumstance to come forward and say, I didn't receive notice from my lawyer. And that's conspicuously absent anything about, you know, there's nothing in the record that says I didn't know. The notice of appeal has nothing about it, for instance. It could have, you know, been thrown in there, but there's not. Counsel, you're into your rebuttal time. I'm, yeah, I was looking at the clock, and i got four minutes, so I guess I'll, I'll pass to Mr. Wood if that would be appropriate. Thank you. Here from the FLE. Good afternoon. My name is Pete Wood. I'm the attorney for Alicia Jones, who's the mother in this case. Thank you very much for granting oral arguments. It's always a pleasure to appear before the honorable court. Um, I think the facts, the procedural facts in this case, are largely not in dispute. And where we differ is that we have different views on the opinion of the Court of Appeals. I think the Court of Appeals got it right. And the other side sides with the dissent. Um, so let me just address some questions that, to, that, that you asked of him. And I think I have some answers to those before I get into my, my argument. Uh, first of all, uh, Justice Dietz, I would say that Rule 3 does not necessarily have to be strictly construed. As you pointed out, there's a two-part analysis. If somebody files a notice of appeal, is number one, could it be inferred what the intention is? And number two, uh, was there some sort of reliance to the detriment of the other side by that faulty notice of appeal? There's, there's no question the appeal wasn't done right. Okay, it was to the uh, 
Supreme Court, and at that point, the law does change. I would point out two things, though, and that is that until July 1st, it was the correct place to appeal to, and I can tell you that a lot of us appellate attorneys got it wrong, and we struggled with that for a few months, and there was several of those had to be redone. The other thing- just, Sorry, before you move on, just along those lines, sure. looking at the notice of appeal on page 45 of the record, um, it appears, so the, the respondent mother signed this herself. It wasn't prepared by counsel, is that right? That's right, it's a pro se. And was this a form, do you, do you, is there any information about whether this was a form that was provided to her? I don't know where she got it. All I know is she did not get it from the Office of the Parent Defender. Uh, because that was switched over July 1st, like clockwork. They've been very clear about that, and that's where most parents get their uh, notice of appeal. I don't know where she got it, but it looks to me like she got an old form and relied on it and didn't bother to change it. But what I would say is that nobody was prejudiced on this by this, and there's no question that this, this was going to the Court of Appeals, because every step of the way from appointment of me to ordering of the transcript, the transcript being delivered, to the service of the proposed record, to the clerk's office sending me the uh, files, to the settlement of the record, to the briefs being filed, to um, the decision of the Court of Appeals, went like clockwork. There was no confusion whatsoever any step of the way. Nobody had any doubt that this was supposed to be in the Court of Appeals. And it wasn't until Judge Tyson noticed this in the, uh, in his dissent that a lot of us felt like idiots for missing it. But there was every clerk and every official involved in this case assumed it was in the Court of Appeals. That's what the law said. And there was no, there was no confusion whatsoever. No extensions had to be asked for because of confusion. And then when it made it up here, it got up here pretty quickly and uh, everything was filed on time, the notice of appeal, the briefs, the response to uh, oral argument being settled. There was, no prejudice, no confusion whatsoever. Did the Court of Appeals have the right or at least the wherewithal to be able to convert this erroneous appeal to a writ of certiorari in its discretion and then entertain it properly? Yes, yes it did. Uh, there's, there's, there's case law which says that an appellate court may treat a brief as a uh, petition for writ of cert. Uh, the court also has the authority to rule to, 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 to suspend the rules and uh, just in the interest of justice to, to grant, to, to treat the notice of appeal as being correct. So as, as I mentioned to your friend, if I understand the theory of the dissent correctly, it's that it's the state v. Rick's reasoning. So the dissent believes that when the Court of Appeals construes pleadings um, as a cert petition or uh, I don't see any reason why the court just couldn't on its own initiative say we're going to issue a writ of certiorari under our, the, the statutory authority of the Court of Appeals. Uh, what the dissent believes is in that case, though, the only way it can be done is you are invoking Rule 2, and then the dissent, if I understand reasoning correctly, says that's state v. Ricks, because you're both then issuing a writ of certiorari and invoking Rule 2, and state v. Ricks says that's per se abuse of discretion to do that. So why is the dissent incorrect there? I think there's a number of ways to do it, and I think that the uh, majority went about it the correct way. It's also interesting that the case that the, that, the, that the dissent cites has this sort of general proposition of law, but then actually in that case, I believe they found a faulty notice of appeal to be correct, where they had appealed to the wrong court. So 
It's hard for me to find a lot of cases where the uh, either Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals kicked out an appeal for being to the wrong court. For the most part, there seems to be a lot of grace from the two appellate courts in these situations. And I would certainly argue that there's some pretty extenuating circumstances here and that the rule had just changed. And like I said, a lot of us were making that mistake. So it took two, three months for that to sort of be settled out and people to get the two courts right. Um, Under the I, circumstances of this case, should this court do anything differently as to looking at how the Court of Appeals exercised this discretion in terms of uh, this court telling the Court of Appeals that somehow it used this discretion in a wrongful way? I, I think the Court of Appeals did it right, but I, I, I think you have a number of ways you can go about doing this. You can simply affirm. You can invoke Rule 2 yourself. I filed a petition for writ of cert with my brief. You can grant that. Uh, you have many uh, options at your disposal. Um, but I think the, the bottom line to me is that it's just, we're supposed to provide these, these, these uh, rules that are fair to a parent. And I, I think to kick out this case for a bad notice of appeal would not be fair, especially given that she didn't have a lawyer, her lawyer was removed. And she's pro se, somehow she got a notice of appeal, which was a pretty good one except for being in the wrong court, and she signed it and filed it, which I think is pretty commendable. I know a lot of lawyers who can't do that. <laughs> so I, I, I just think in this situation, it would just not be just. I think that we should move on and look at this case from the merits. Um, so to me, this case comes down to notice. And notice is kind of the bedrock of our judicial system, right? And Without notice, you can't have a hearing. And at the, no, matter, no matter how great somebody's case is against somebody else, the second person has a right to appear in court and defend themselves and you know, present a case in, in opposition. And that's codified in uh, the general statutes all over the place. It's in the statutes dealing with determination of parental rights. It's in the rules of civil procedure. The rules of civil procedure are followed in termination cases. It's a pretty fundamental uh, part of our law. So it's undisputed that the mom got notice of that there was an action against her. She got notice she had a provisional counsel. She responded to that. We know she got that because number one, the summons shows service, but number two, she contacted her attorney. Now this attorney is a provisional attorney. This attorney is not a, an appointed attorney yet, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot to say about this, but let me just get back to the counsel, notice. Let me, one question about the, the provisional sure. nature. When, the, when that counsel uh, files the uh, motions for extension of time, what, you know, that, obviously that attorney was not a, appearing for the attorney. So it, it was, there was an attorney-client relationship with that. Yes. When filing that, would you agree with that? So yes. what, is there any meaningful distinction between being provisional and being full counsel for Oh, absolutely. There's a huge, huge distinction. But here, here's the issue. To well, I, I meant a practical one for what we're looking at. What, what would the difference be? Okay. The difference comes down to notice, all right? If you're, if you're a provisional attorney, if you show up at the hearing and uh, you, the client doesn't show up, you're removed, 
end of story, although I think that the court has an obligation to look into whether or not the, the client had notice of the hearing, but you're removed. Now, if, you're, if, if your uh, representation has evolved to where you're not just provisional, but you're a court-appointed attorney, you're a regular attorney at that point, then you can't just remove the person. At that point, before removing the person, the court has to do an inquiry. And the court has to determine, number one, did the parent have uh, notice of the hearing and notice of the intent of her lawyer to file a motion to withdraw. And if the court finds those, it can then proceed to the merits. Number two, if the court doesn't find those, then the court has to ask the attorney, what steps did you take to contact the parent? Actual notice is not always required because, so I, I had an appeal a number of years ago where I, I sent a proposed record to one of the other parties and the other party just kept sending it back to me, right? And so they could claim, I guess, that they never looked at it, but that's their doing. So you can't have somebody, you can't hide behind no actual notice if you're somehow avoiding getting the notice in the first place, like that attorney was doing. But so if there is no actual notice, the next step is to determine, did the people who should have been notifying, did they take reasonable action? Did they send it to the last known address, for example? So Council, Council? Yeah. Um, I think you argue in your brief that the service provisions in Rule 5 of the Rules of Civil Procedure apply. Yes. Um, isn't it the case that for most pleadings and other documents under Rule 5, that service on a party can be accomplished through service on the party's counsel, unless the court orders otherwise. And if I'm right about that, why wouldn't that apply here? Well, the question then is, did, was the attorney provisional counsel or not? And if you're provisional counsel, then it's the duty of petitioner to serve because you're not really representing the person yet. Not until you're, at some point you represent the person and the case law gives, does not did, help did, with this. But did provisional counsel file the motion for an extension of time? Yes. So are you, are you, I'm just trying to understand the argument. Are, are you arguing that uh, even though provisional counsel filed a motion for an extension of time, provisional counsel wasn't the attorney for the mother <clears throat> for purposes of Rule 5? I don't know because the case law doesn't really give a clear answer about this. At some point, provisional counsel does enough to become appointed counsel. I don't know where to draw the line, but at some point that happens. For example, if you had a parent and an attorney who met numerous times, constructed a defense, filed an answer, subpoenaed witnesses, and that attorney came to court and the mother wasn't there or the father wasn't there, I would submit that you could not just remove that attorney because that attorney had done enough to evolve past being just provisional counsel. But that's kind of a weighted example, right? Did the, did the attorney do enough in this case? I don't know because there isn't really any case law that's helpful here, but at some point you do. But what I'm saying is that the attorney is either provisional counsel or the attorney is a regular counsel. 
And in either case, the trial court didn't follow the proper procedure. If you counsel, I'm sorry if I'm your friend on the other side and I am attempting to serve another party. How do I know if if the attorney representing that party is provisional counsel or not? That's a good question because we kind of a black box, you know, until from the from the date the provisional counsel counsel is appointed until the first hearing. We don't really know until the court says you're not provisional counsel, you're regular counsel. We don't really have a clear cut answer. So I don't know. What I'm saying is there at some point that attorney does enough and I don't know when that is. The attorney may have done enough in this case, maybe not. But the trial court decided that she was provisional counsel. So if she's provisional counsel. At that point, she doesn't have a duty to contact the mother, but petitioners do. So if she's provisional counsel, then the trial court should determine if there was notice of the hearing given. And she probably look in the file and ask questions of petitioners attorney. Do you agree that 7B-1101.1 A is controlling under these circumstances where you have a private TPR action? Yes. Yes, it is. I think the last just explain how your answers are consistent with the last sentence of subparagraph A that says at the first hearing after service upon the respondent parent, the court shall dismiss the provisional counsel if respondent parent does not appear at the hearing. OK, I think it's consistent in two ways. In number one, I think that it leaves out a number of extenuating circumstances. What does the statute does? Yeah, because I think, yes, Your Honor, I I think we can all think of situations where that attorney would have done enough to not be just provisional counsel. Like the example I gave where the attorney had filed an answer and subpoenaed witnesses and suppose that all that had been done and the mother was in a car accident in the ICU and the attorney notified the court. At that point, could the court remove the attorney because the mother didn't show up for the first hearing? I would say that would be unjust because that would be that would be extenuating circumstances. But the other thing is that that notice still comes into play here. If the attorney is removed, then we're still left with the question of did the mother know about the hearing? And 1101.1 doesn't trump any of the notice statutes. The mother still has to have notice. The question is who has to give it to her? And that's why the petitioners are required to send notice if it's just provisional. And I would submit petitioners had two addresses for the mom and they could have just mailed something. They had the address for the mom from the summons and they also had to return address in the letter that was sent in July. But nothing was sent to either one. But if that attorney is no longer just provisional, then the duty shifts back to the attorney to notify the mom. But the court still has to do an inquiry. The court has to ask the attorney, number one, did your client have notice of this hearing and notice of your intent to withdraw? Number two, if the parent did not have notice, did you take reasonable efforts? What steps did you take? 
And if it, if it turns out that the attorney had sent multiple letters to the, to the address and they're all marked return to sender or there's, there's no response, I think at that point we can infer that the attorney made reasonable efforts to locate the client. Because uh, the client can't just get the mail and throw it out and then claim not to have notice. Well, is this case more about whether or not the attorney was provisional versus court appointed, or is it about whether the trial court has a responsibility to address that attorney and find out from that attorney aspects about notice and whether or not the absence of the here mother uh, is based upon some lack of ability to notify the mother? I think, I think both apply because there's, there's two different sets of rules depending on whether or not the attorney is provisional or just regular court appointed. Like I said, if, if, the, if the attorney is just provisional, then there's less of an inquiry required. I think at that point, the court only has to look at the whether or not the, the client had, the, the parent had noticed to be there. And I think that the, the, the court should look to petitioners and inquire of them and look at the files, see if notice was given. But if it's a, but if the attorneys move past provisional, at that point, then we look at the case law and we look at the inquiry that's required. And if it's a regular, if the attorney has moved on to be a regular attorney and not just provisional, then we still have to determine if that attorney then contacted the parent and told the parent to be there. And if there is an actual notice from the attorney, then what steps did the attorney make? If the attorney is, is sending out letters to the parent at the last known address, leaving messages at the place of work and, you know, sending letters at the place of work, then I think it'd be pretty safe to say at that point, the parent probably, the attorney had probably done enough but we don't know because there was no inquiry made. Yeah. So under what we know here, and you guided me into my next question, saying based upon what we know, based upon what we know here, was the trial court obligated by statute to make the inquiries to the counsel before letting counsel go as to whether or not there was notice to the mother and whether or not the counsel had made efforts to make sure that the mother was aware of the court date? I think that if the... Uh trial court determined that this was just provisional counsel, I don't know that in inquiry was required except to the extent just to find out if the mother had noticed of the hearing. And I think that that would be the court at that point should then look at all the evidence, should ask one or two questions of petitioners, should look at the file, see if there's anything in there to show notice had been given, and should also ask questions of the uh, of the attorney, although is, is it the mother's contention that that was satisfied here? Uh, it was not satisfied here because the court made no inquiry whatsoever, and I think it's, I, I think whether or not the attorney is provisional or a fully court appointed attorney, uh, that just affects who the uh, trial court should ask. If the, if the if the attorney is a full attorney, then at that point there's case law aplenty that goes into the questions that the uh, trial court is supposed to ask. I, this, this is just a huge ounce of prevention thing. I think that the, the procedures I'm talking about aren't crippling. They would take a minute of the court time. You know, just it's, it's, it's pretty routine whenever someone doesn't show up for court, whenever court I happen to be in, in the Wake County Courthouse, to just say, okay, number one, let's look at the file. Number two, Mr. DA, what steps did you take? Mr. Defense Attorney, what steps did you take? You know, it doesn't take long. Um, I, I think that uh, if 
the court had done that, we may not be here today. And if uh, the petitioners had sent out a notice to the last two addresses, I don't know that we'd be here today. Well, if the attorney was not provisional and was fully court appointed, then the court would have needed to make even more inquiry than the court would have needed to make of a provisional one in terms of matters of contacting the mother and whether or not there was notice. Is that, is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. So under either circumstance, the trial court did not make the appropriate quantity or quality of inquiry to be able to release the counsel, whether provisional or court appointed. Is that right? Yeah, I would say you're 100% right. I, I, I fully agree with you. Uh, there was a, I, I think it, it doesn't take long. I mean, you've seen this record. The record is, what, 60 pages long? It's a very small file. It does not take long to leaf through or determine if somebody sent out notice, and it takes very little time to ask one or two questions of everybody. The only question the court had to ask the trial attorney, if the trial attorney was a full trial attorney, was what effort did you make to contact the mother? Does uh, the parent uh, have any duty to contact the attorney after being served with a TPR and given notice that uh, they have been appointed a provisional counsel. Can they sit back and do nothing, or do they have to at least take uh, some step to cooperate with their attorney? Um, I'm not... I don't know that the parent has a duty to do anything, but if the parent doesn't do anything, then I think they can't complain about what happens in court. If the parent has noticed and is hiding out and not contacting people, then what happens in court is kind of their own fault. Um, but we don't know if the parent had notice or not. I mean, well, you, you, you've already conceded that the parent had noticed that there was a TPR, right? And that the parent had notice of uh, who her attorney was and how to contact her attorney, right? And she, in fact, did contact her attorney but she did not cooperate with regard to uh, uh, filing an answer. Well, I would agree with that. And uh, we, we take the clients that we are dealt and the clients don't always do what helps us out. I've certainly learned that after 30 years. Um, but ne nevertheless, even though we can't make the clients do anything, the court is still held to a certain standard. Um, and I, I don't know what would have happened if the client had shown up for court, if she knew about court, or if the attorney had been kept there. Nobody does. Well, l let me ask you this. Sure. What would happen, what would be the consequences of the, if, if we rule that in these circumstances, there's no need to show that whether provisional attorney or appointed actual counsel representing the parent, there's, there's no further need to show that the mother had any notice of this particular hearing date and time. Uh, I would say that number one, I would lose this appeal, uh, but then it would be kicked back down to the Court of Appeals to address the one issue they needed to address the first time, ideally. Um, it would depend. I, I, would, I, I, I would hate to see a crack in, in the wall on this, uh, this, this foundational uh, rule that we haven't been noticed in this state. And I think if you start 
having exceptions to this and just say, you know what, these, these parents, what these parents have done in these cases is so egregious that they don't deserve the notice anybody else has. Um, I'm not going into the facts of what my client did as far as her kids, but that to me is not relevant when it comes down to the procedural due process rights. But I, I, I think that would set a very bad precedent and then this, that case would be cited in other cases and who knows where that would lead, what other examples people would come up with where people <coughs> are entitled to full notice once they get notice of that there's a proceeding against them. I, I will just say from personal experience that I've been a trial attorney for 30 years and having notice of a proceeding does not equate to having notice, having notice of an action does not equate to having notice of a court date. Um, you need both. And if you don't have notice of the court date, I think the appellate law is pretty clear on this. Uh, having notice of the action alone is not sufficient. So I would ask the court to affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. I think the majority got it right. Um, I think, number one, that the trial court did have subject matter jurisdiction to hear this case. Um, I'm sorry, the Court of Appeals had subject matter jurisdiction to hear this case because everything proceeded normally, nobody was prejudiced. I don't think there's any question at all. If you look at, there's, there's, there's no motions filed anywhere saying, hey, I didn't realize, I was, I was contacting uh, the clerk of the Supreme Court. I had no idea this was down in the Court of Appeals because everybody knew where it was and nobody was misled and nobody was prejudiced. And then, so in that situation, people had, had noticed what was going on. In the uh, case termination action, though, I would think that the very bare bones, the mother deserves notice at a hearing. And the record just doesn't have any evidence that she had notice. And the court very easily could have fixed that by taking a couple of minutes to ask the parties questions and to leaf through the file and see what had been served on everybody. I know your time is running low. Sure. But I want to make sure that I'm clear on what you're saying about the subject matters jurisdiction. Despite the fact that you say that uh, everybody had notice about the matter coming up on appeal and that there was no uh, prejudice to anybody, you're not suggesting that the parties can confer jurisdiction, are you? No, I'm not. I'm just referring to... Uh to what the case law says, and the case law asks, number one, can the, the notice, can the notice of appeal be, re, uh, be reasonably, can, can, can what court is it being appealed to be reasonably inferred? And I'm saying evidence of that is the fact that everybody uh, worked out the appeal and everything was served on time. They can know, they cannot confer jurisdiction, but that's evidence that, that everybody could infer to what court it was going. And that's also evidence as far as nobody was misled. But no, they absolutely cannot confer jurisdiction. 
I'm about to run out of time, so if there are no further questions, I would thank the court very much for its time. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you again. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. You have a rebuttal. I think the key key point is for a respondent parent to have fundamentally fair procedures, which I think was afforded to the mother in this case. She had a court-appointed attorney from the start. Um, there's absolutely no difference between a provisionally appointed attorney and a regular attorney. They're both attorneys. Rules of civil procedure apply equally. There's no distinction in Rule 5 that differentiates one from the other. Same duties of you know, competence, um, uh, rules of professional responsibility apply either way you go. There's just no, no distinction. Um, you know, no, no more, no less. They're the, they're the client's attorney for the time they're appointed. Um, um, so, so does that mean it's your position that um, our holding in, I'm going to come back to KMW, <laughs> that that applies here, uh, where, we, where we say very clearly that um, before relieving an attorney from any obligation to actively participate in a termination of parental rights proceeding, when the parent is absent from the hearing, the court has to inquire as to the efforts made by counsel. Well, I think the court, you know, did make the efforts. There may have been some distinctions with that case. That may have been a DSS case, for instance. But why would that make a difference? Well, since the state acting as the moving party versus, you know, husband and wife, Ms. Cutshaw, who are, you know, just private, private individuals. Um, there, there, there may be more. It seemed like if that's the one I'm thinking about, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but there had been, you know, perhaps a, you know, series of events where the parent had appeared before, and I, I may be getting that mixed up with a different one, and I'm sorry if I am, but, um, but I, I think some of the key points in the time remaining that the mother was served, she knew, she knew she'd been served, she's certainly disappeared. Um, you know, I, regarding the provisionally appointed efforts, this is the language from Judge Tyson. There is no dispute Ms. Walker ably and zealously represented mother within the conduct and constraints imposed, and she used reasonable investigations to seek out and make contact with the mother, which I thought was a very nice compliment to Ms. To Ms. Walker and the effort she did. You know, the, she was available. She contacted the treatment facility, which I thought was, you know, an effort that a lot of attorneys wouldn't make that step, uh, in addition to, you know, to obtaining the extension of time, which I don't often see in, t in, in termination proceedings. Um, I guess, lastly, I've seen in a couple places, I believe in the Court of Appeals opinions and maybe in the mother's brief, that the mother wanted to contest <coughs> the TPR. This is actually not in the transcript anywhere. I've looked. Um, and again, the portion where Ms. Walker did the talking was not very lengthy. Um, no indication that was ever the case. Uh, motion for extension of time may have just been to buy time, give her some time to think about things. You know, no one knows. There's certainly no, nothing in the motion that describes why she needed more time. Um, with that, I'll rest and thank you. Um, pleasure to be here today and um, thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you counsel. Thank you, both counsel, Mr. Clark. All right.